All righty. Just might interrupt uh, everyone's recap of the match this morning. Um, and uh, although we had a dramatic retelling, um, there's a little bit more at the end of the passage, so I'm going to go over it now. Um, so we're reading from 2 Samuel chapter 12. Um, we'll start in verse 1 and go through to verse 25. So if you want to join with me um, in reading along. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveller to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do it, do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore brought God on or sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. Now how then can we say to him the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. And David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? 
You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her and she bore a son and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. I think you're going to be shocked today. I'm shocked not at David's sin. That was when we looked at chapter 11 a couple of weeks ago. But actually shocked at how God deals with sin. Just at the, the cost and the consequences of our sin. Now, the, the, the drama that we, that we had before, the, the overriding message, and we need to keep this in mind, is this wonderful forgiveness and mercy that God offers us. But as we, we open sort of under the bonnet today and look at the messiness of sin and the consequences of it, we're going to see that there is an incredible cost to God's forgiveness and there's, there's huge consequences to our sin. Let me ask you a question to, to get you thinking about this. When you repent of your sin, are there, are there consequences? So when you say, sorry, everything's all right, right? In Psalm 51, David prays, remove my transgressions from me, and we believe that that's true. Cleanse me from my sin, uh, that, that's clearly true. Condemnation of sin is always removed. There is forgiveness, the relationship is restored between us and God. However, there's the question, do, do the consequences of our sin still somehow remain? Let me sort of give some examples that, that might help flesh this out. When you gossip, or slander someone, right? hopefully there'll be opportunity for repentance and, and reconciliation. But can there be ongoing consequences of, of what's happened there? Maybe not just the people involved, but maybe other people. There might be a loss of trust or relationship. How about porn use? Right? Particularly those who are single, it might be easy to think, well, I you know this sin's bad, but are there consequences? Right, is the possibility of ongoing consequences. Substance abuse, that one's probably easier to, to see. Uh, it's quite clear that there, there could and are um, physical ongoing consequences to substance abuse. When we confess our sin, that condemnation is always removed. Right? We need to remember and hold on and be so, so thankful for that. But as this passage will, will show us, there often are ongoing consequences to our sin. And I hope as we see that, it will draw us to, to hate sin even more and see the incredible cost that our Saviour has paid for our sin and point us again to him and his grace. So let me pray. Father, uh, we want to pray that today uh, that your word would speak to us Help us to wrestle with what is a, a challenging passage under the surface. 
uh, help us to, to see um, clearly what you say about the consequences of sin. And I pray that you would help us to rightly apply that to our lives, that this would call for change in us. And we would be reminded again and afresh that your grace not only saves us from the condemnation and penalty of sin, uh, but it saves us from the power of sin. And I pray that we would rightly appropriate your Holy Spirit um, as you have given yourself to enable us to, to fight and to say no to sin. Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Nathan, in our passage, has been sent to reveal sin. Now, his approach is interesting, and I think we can learn from his approach. He doesn't just tell David, these are all the ways that, that you've sinned, but he actually helps sort of reveal it and actually draws out David's own heart in this sin. And I think this is really important. This Parents, this is, this is probably really important as you think, think about trying to help your, your children but it's helpful for all of us. Um, we, we don't just want to see our kids doing the right thing. Like we can tell them what's the right thing to do. We actually want their hearts to be changed and drawn to God so that they would want to do the right thing. And, and here we can see David sort of drawing, oh, sorry, Nathan showing and, and sort of drawing David's heart. It's, it's really helpful um, to us. And, and David gets to the point uh, in verse 5, where, where he himself is sort of so drawn in that he condemns his own sin. Uh, it says, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, lives the man who has done this deserves to die. Right? So David's put his finger on it right there. The, 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 the necessary and, and right punishment for what this man has done is death. And the implication, therefore, hanging over this whole passage is that David himself deserves to die. And this, we, we find it in this, that actually the crux of the Christian message, that each and every one of us, as we're confronted with our own sin, as we see it for what it is, must realise that because of that, we deserve to die. But then embracing that another has died for you. Well, we're going to see that in this passage. This sin not only deserves David's death, but also restitution. You notice there that David goes on in verse 6 to say, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. The, the law itself would say for anyone who stole, there was a fourfold restitution. Okay, so we see that picked up in the New Testament story, story of Zacchaeus when the tax collector who's been stealing money and he says, I'll repay fourfold. That was actually the, the legal requirement for, for stealing. Now, that's, that's an important thing to, to remember. There's a fourfold requirement uh, for what David has done. Then verse 7, uh, we get the, the reveal when Nathan reveals that it's actually David. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you master's house, your master's wife, into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and Ju Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. In verse 7 and 8, we see uh, that 
that God has spent, had such a generous heart towards David. Uh, he's been kind to David. He's blessed him in, in so many ways. He has anointed, he has delivered, he has given him, and he would have given him more. We see here God's heart is to deliver and to give, but David's heart is to despise and to take. He is the one that had no pity. Now, David, in, in the story in chapter 11, he broke most of the Ten Commandments. You can sort of see um, some of them very clearly, adultery, murder, but he actually broke almost all of them in, in what he was doing there. Um, but verse 9 makes it clear that first and foremost, David's sin is to despise God's word and in doing that to actually despise God himself. So in verse 9, and Nathan says, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. I see the link in those two verses, the despised God's word. Um, but he's, he's saying, well, actually, that's to despise God himself. That's a, it's an important point. Um, God's word and God himself are actually inseparable in Scripture. His word is always true, so it's always a represent, representation of, of who he is. We see that in Jesus in the start of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God and was with God. Okay, there's, there's an inseparable relationship there. And so therefore, for, for us, both to disobey God's word or to reject it is to despise God himself. But similarly, as we would love and obey uh, and um, abide by God's word, that is to love and obey and abide in God himself. Now, there's shocking consequences here for David based on his despising God. We see them in, in verse 10 and then in verse 11. Firstly, in, in verse 10, um, we, we read, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. There's two words there to, to pay attention to. Firstly, a sword. In the previous verse, it was clear that, um, that, that Nathan is saying, or God's saying through Nathan, that David himself is responsible for killing Uriah. It's, he didn't wield the sword, but, but he, he's responsible for using the swords of the Amorites to, to kill Uriah. Now, that's in contrast with what David himself had said back in chapter 11. Remember when he was sort of told about Uriah's dead, he said, well, the, the sword now affects one and now another. Um, he's been told, actually, that's not true, David. You are directly responsible for Uriah's death. And now he's saying that the sword is going to directly affect David. The other word to pick up there in verse 10 is house. The sword shall never depart from your house. Remember in Chapter 7, we saw the, the house used so beautifully. David was going to build a house for the Lord, for the Lord, for a temple. And, and God said, no, no, I'll, I'll build you a house. And he's talking about a dynasty. Right? But now a sword is, is going to be affecting this house. 
Uh, it's, it's David's own children that are going to be affected here by his sin. Okay, remember I said um, about a fourfold restoration? You keep reading through 2 Samuel, we see that the child to Bathsheba uh, dies. In the very next chapter, um, David's eldest son, Ammon, is, is killed. He, it's a terrible story. Um, but, but he's killed by another one of his sons. A couple of chapters later, Absalom tries to take the crown and he is killed. And then um, Adonijah, um, a fourth son, is killed in sort of the wrestle for the crown with Solomon. Right? It's a fourfold restoration. It's, it's shocking. Uh, as you read through the second half of Second Samuel, it's, it's contrasted so significantly in the hinge point is chapter 11 with the, the first 10 chapters. David um, just beautifully and wonderfully um, abiding by the Lord, then this incredible sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, and, and it's the, the whole kingdom is affected by David's sin. The, the second consequence, the first one is the sword in his house. The second consequence is sort of evil arising up from his own house. That's in verse 12. Um, sorry, verse, verse 11. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbour, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do these things before all Israel and before the son. Now, it's David's own son, Absalom, that, that does this. You can read that in, in chapter 16. It's, it's horrific. He, he takes um, a number of David's concubines and, and lies very publicly with them. So there's a statement that he is taking over the, the kingdom. He has the same sins as his father, lust, deception, betrayal, and murder. Okay, so, so at this point... Uh, David has been confronted with his own heart. Right? He's been confronted that, that he is the one that has had no pity, that he is the one that has grievously sinned and deserves to die and deserves this, this consequence. And they're terrible consequences. And David, he doesn't try to explain what he did. He doesn't try to excuse what he has done. He doesn't try to minimise his sin. In verse 13, we're told, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Just a beautiful, short outpouring of repentance. How quick would you and I possibly be to try and excuse, explain, or minimise? Uh, but David has been brought low, he's humbled, and he has repented of his sin. Now, we saw last week, as Andrew um, really helpfully took us through Psalm 51, the, the full um, conf confession, uh, and just that's such a helpful psalm in, in helping us see a heart of conf confession and drawing our hearts uh, to God in that. Andrew pointed to this. I think it's worth mentioning again. There's a, there's a real contrast between Saul, the first king, and the previous king of Israel, and David. So Saul, he is, is quite similar if you read the account. He, he is 
uh, confronted with his own sin by the, the prophet Samuel. Uh, but Saul tries to explain and sort of minimise and he is remorseful because of the consequences, but he isn't humble and repentant the way that we see David here. Okay. Then in verse 13, and, and this is what the, the youth helped pull out for us, uh, David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. There's beautiful and comforting words. It's pointing us to the forgiveness that we always have. We always have because of our Saviour Jesus. When we repent, we admit that we have sinned. Now, admit it, I think most of us, if not all of us at this point, sort of assume, okay, great, David's repented. Um, the sin's been dealt with. He can get on with his life. And this is what's pretty shocking in the, this passage, and I think it is. it does shock us. While God forgives the guilt, he still inflicts the consequence. In, in verse 14, Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Be shocked. He's confessed. He's repented. He still receives the consequences. Now, there's some, some questions that I want to address at this point because I, I think it's, it's helpful for us to see this, this event is a very significant event in salvation history. Um, th this is a specific event and not, not sort of one to, to assume in all cases. Okay, so a question that might be arisen from this, are, are children condemned because of their parents' sin? Right? And in this case, it seems like that's, that's true, but that is, that is not a, a general case. Okay, so um, it, it, very clearly in, in Ezekiel chapter 18, um, there's, there's actually a really helpful um, section sort of dealing with this, and it's very clear that, that neither are parents guilty for the, the children's sin or, or children for their parents. Many of you would be familiar with the, the story in John chapter 9 where the question is asked, you know, for, because of whose sin was this man born blind, his parents or his? And, and Jesus says, neither. It's, it's for the glory of God. Okay, so I want to make it very, very clear that the Bible makes a clear distinction um, there. But a related question, do the consequences of parent sin sometimes affect children? Well, shockingly, the answer to this is yes. A very well-known passages in in uh, Book of Exodus. In fact, I'll, I'll flick there now. And th these passages are, are repeated uh, in the scriptures a, a number of times. So Exodus twenty and and thirty-four both basically have similar wordings here. Um, 
it says, God forgives iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Very sobering. But it's naive of me to, to think that my children don't bear some of the consequences of my sin. And this is more than just generational. No, this is, there's clear community effect to this as well. Sin is like pollution. And as we, as we do it, it, it affects those around us and those closest to us often most strongly. Statistics sort of clearly back this sort of stuff. Sin, sadly and soberingly, often tracks through communities and through generations. So make you hate sin more. Do you hate its effect on us and others? Now, God uses the consequences, I believe, to, to warn us, to help us to, to stop, to say no, uh, and, and most importantly, and, and beautifully and wonderfully, to turn us to him. I know we're, we're feeling this pretty heavily right now, but I want to I share a story that I, I'm actually hoping will sort of massage this point in a little bit more. Uh, a bit over 100 years ago, uh, there was a guy called Robert Scott uh, was, was sent to, to be the first one to, to get to the, the South Pole. And um, you read lots, lots about the trip, but it was obviously it's a very hard and arduous trek. And, and tragically, they, they got there. And they actually, if you read the diaries and entries and stuff, in pretty good nick and, and pretty good spirits. And then quite suddenly when they're actually within a few hundred kilometres of, of getting back, they really start to deteriorate quickly, uh, he and, and those that are, that are with him. And modern evidence would suggest that actually they were suffering from scurvy, uh, which had all the, the symptoms of that. Now, what's interesting is that the problem of scurvy had been solved 150 years before, right? They knew that, you, you, you know, the, or, Orange juice and lime juice, citrus, uh, was was sort of the the thing because they'd previous to that sailors on long journeys without access to, to fresh fruit and and whatnot had suffered from scurvy and often kicked in around the three four month mark, right? So for 150 years they'd had this cure. Now during that time, um, it, they'd gone from sort of having the fresh fruit and veggies on board to just bottling boiling up some lemons or limes and and have it in, in lime juice right sort of concurrent to that advances in navigation and whatnot meant the trips were faster so now they're actually not trips of going for three to four months so they're having this lime juice but the lime the the pro product making the lime juice actually had boiled out the vitamin c right so it didn't actually work so so poor scott and his companions they think that they've got the cure for scurvy, they're, they're, they've got lime juice with them, but it wasn't actually effective. It wasn't actually helping with this problem. 
Now, the reason I, I share this story is because you and I, you're a Christian, you're walking with Jesus, uh, you're repentant of your sins. We have the cure, right? We have the forgiveness of sins. But more than that, we don't have just have forgiveness of our sins. We have the power of the Holy Spirit to fight sin so that we're no longer slaved and entrapped to it, but we're freed from it. But I think for many of us, it's a bit like we, we think that we, we can just sort of take this, this lime juice and it will fix us. But we've actually, we've actually moved on, so to speak, from really going back to the grace of, of Jesus, repenting of our sins and turning from them. So often I think we just treat sin so lackadaisically because we, we sort of know that we're going to be forgiven. Right? We don't see the dire consequences of our sins. Please, would you see the evil and the consequences of the sin and would that be part of what would turn you from it and keep you from going? We have God's grace to not only save us from sin but to save us from the power of sin. In the second half of this chapter, David's posture is actually so different. So there's a few points. I'll just point out a few times. In verse 16, he prays for mercy. He knows that God often shows mercy. In verse 20, he worships God. He knows that God is worthy of all worship. And in verse 23, he knows that hope is always offered. Just want to want to read out that that verse. Um, after his son is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. I think we can actually see hope there, and um, hope um, that David has hope for for the eternal soul of his child. He knows that God is merciful, that God can and does save. Now, there's two sons of David mentioned in this passage, and I think we're, we're, they're deliberately put so that we can see them side by side here. So the, the first son... Um, we, we see that he actually dies as a substitute for David's sin. Right, so we're now sort of zooming out and getting the salvation history perspective here. He, he, he actually dies and is a substitute for David's sin. It's, it's very confronting, but I think God is showing us something very important here. The first son shows that we need a substitute. The second son shows that God will keep his promise. Uh, it's just a beautiful verses, that verse 24 and 25. Verse 24 shows us that, that the relationship between David and Bathsheba has been transformed. Remember in, in chapter 11 we noted how in relation to David, Bathsheba was always discussed as, as the woman and always referred to as the wife of Uriah. 
Here in verse 24, David comforted his wife, Bathsheba. Amazingly, in spite of all this sin, there's been a restoration. Like that relationship has been um, re restored beautifully. Um, so she bore a son, called him Solomon. The Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So, so Nathan's just come to, to have a, a message, a really hard message. But now there's a message of, of hope. Right? The message by Nathan the prophet is a simple one. Call his name Jedediah. Great name. Got no sons. I would have called one Jedediah. <laughs> Love that name. Feel free to take it. Um, <laughs> because it means beloved of the Lord. Right? What, a, what a meaning to carry in the name. Beloved of the Lord. This son... It's the fulfillment of, of God's promise to David that he's going to show love to him personally, but through him and his household, he's going to show love to all people. We come to the New Testament and we're, we're in Advent. The angels, they come to the shepherds and they, they say, there's good news of great joy for all people. For today in the town of David, a saviour has been born. Solomon is the, the promised child through whom that promise of a saviour will be born. Now, when John the Baptist first sees Jesus in his adult ministry, John the Baptist, what's he say? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We see here the, the child of the promise, the beloved son of God, Jesus, who is the lamb, who is the substitute for our sins. And God, he has, he has everything. But the one thing that he can give for your and my sins, the one thing that he can give to buy and redeem you is his beloved son, his precious lamb. And Jesus goes to the cross to be that substitute for our sins. Now this morning we're going to share what we call communion or, or the Lord's Supper. But this meal so clearly and wonderfully points us to the, the, the cost that we needed a substitute, that there's a lamb who has died. Jesus, in, in inaugurating the, the, the Lord's Supper, um, he included in the Passover meal, and he represents his body broken and his blood shed as that substitute, that Passover lamb. So as we take these elements, uh, we're, we're seeing that the, the justice of God, the, the cost of sin has been paid. God's justice is essential. But in this meal, we see that God's love is extravagant. That his love is not symmetrical. That passage we looked at before to show the generational sin 
uh, just before that, we're told that God's love and mercy, mercy exceeds for a thousand generations. It pours out. It is not symmetrical. Uh, so clearly seen in the grace that he shows to David, but also to us. And that means something significant and important for us as well, because in, in taking these elements, uh, we're not just confessing our sin and, and, and receiving, partaking in, in Christ's work on the cross for us, but we're partnering with him in sharing his grace and his mercy to those around us. Because just as, as there's consequences to our sin, more so, an asymmetrical God and his love and his mercy, there, there is blessing flows forth as we seek to live in his good ways. And those around us, um, beautifully and wonderfully get to receive in that blessing as we sacrificially serve and love them. So I'm going to invite the, the elders to, and, and deacons to, to come and to, to help me pass the, the elements around if you guys want to make your way down. Um, how we do communion here at, at Christ Community is we invite you to come down to receive the elements. Um, please... Please grab them and take them back and I'll lead us in eating and drinking these together. Uh, if you have any mobility challenges, we'll also, one of the elders will, will go around um, with the elements and be able to bring them to you as well. Um, because we're told to, um, to reflect on our own hearts, uh, as, as a church we've, we've asked for, for children to, to not partake in these until our communicant members of the church so that we as a church can conform that you are um, trusting in, in Jesus. Um, but I want to want to warmly welcome any of those. Um, and we've had some new conversions I hear at SBP just this past week. So if you are um, trusting in Jesus, uh, you're repenting of sin, please come and celebrate what he has done for you. And in partaking that, partake in his good work in spreading the good news amongst all people. Well, let me pray and then I'll invite us down. Our Father, uh, we thank you for these elements and pray that um, you would help us to uh, confess our sins. Uh, Father, we, we acknowledge that there can be huge consequence uh, to our sins, but we also know, just as David does, that you are merciful. Um, and we pray for your mercy and your goodness. Uh, Father, we, we pray that, um, that you would stop generational and community sins in their tracks. Uh, would you help us to, to fight with the power of your Holy Spirit and be freed from the power of sin? And Father, would we indeed be the opposite, just as, as Jesus is, would we be those that are a blessing uh, to those around us, that we might be used by you as instruments in your hands to bring blessing and peace and the good news of Jesus to those around us. Uh, Father, as we take these elements, would you remind us of these things? In Jesus' name, amen.